Hello and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, journalist Helen Fospero. This week is part two of our special with Formula One legend Sir Jackie Stewart. The three times former world champion is credited with massively improving safety in the sport, even though he wasn't always popular for it. Today we chat about that legacy, his brush with death at Spa in 1966, why he quit the sport a relatively young man aged just 34, and get his thoughts on Sir Lewis Hamilton. So Jackie, we talked in part one about the closeness of the drivers and their families, and as you described it, the hideous danger you all faced on the track. How did you cope with that danger, and what mindset was needed? Emotions are dangerous. So I learned to remove emotion. It started the night before a race. I'm a dyslexic. I can't read well. So I used to read a book to go to sleep rather than think about the first corner. I would read Alistair MacLean as a writer, a good Scotsman and a friend at the same time. And he wrote really good, light to easy read books. So I would look for those and I would have them with me or one at a time naturally because I'm a very slow reader. But it took my head away from what was happening tomorrow, the start of a race. And I would wake up early in the morning with a part of my friends, but shit, it's a Grand Prix. So I'd immediately go to the book and start reading the book again because the amount of concentration I had to read took away everything that was going on that could have been, you know, just winding me up. So I removed emotion when I started the night before a race, not just the fact of reading to excuse myself from thinking what am I going to do in the first corner. Even walking down at Monte Carlo from the Hotel de Paris to the starting grid was again a mind management exercise. You could wave to the crowd and they loved all of that, but don't start thinking about the first corner again. So I learned to totally remove emotion from the time I woke up in the morning and through the whole time of not only the start of the race, but the end of the race. And it lasted because I had really destroyed my outside brain. It would be three days after the race that I would take any real interest in, oh my goodness, I won the race. Because emotion's dangerous in any life. Because when you're emotional, you say things and do things that later you wish you had never said or done. And in a racing car, that was even more important. And I would say the same should be played by the current generation of racing drivers. And I'm not quite sure whether they've got that story fully at home in their brain. You know, I won most of my races in the first five laps because generally, and particularly in those days with the danger and the deaths, everybody was uptight. And they never drove as well when they were as uptight as that, as when they calmed down by a quarter into the race and sometimes even a half into the race, then they would start to be really good, clean racing drivers. And in my case, I didn't have that disadvantage. I had no emotion. You know, from the beginning of dropping the flag, because it wasn't a light in those days, it was a flag. I knew very well when a man, and they were mostly mature men, the privilege of starting a Grand Prix was usually one of man's, you know, they've done so this or they've done that. And they were generally not young. So when they lifted the big flag, and particularly in Monte Carlo, because the first corner was very important, as soon as their knees bent and the flag began to drop, 
I was gone. <laughs> and nobody else was doing that. So hardly ever did I not get into the first corner on the first lap and have the first five laps of absolutely clean head and not being distracted or the event of the car or the tires being new and therefore not being quite so sticky. All of those things were all to do with the drive, the car, not to do with the emotion. And emotion's dangerous. When you get emotional, you sometimes do and say things you never wished you had said or done. So motor racing is no different than that. But I think it's probably true for every sport. And I'm not sure that all that many people have actually gone that route. But in fact, my dyslexia had a great part in doing that. Because when I read to this day, I hardly read because it's so difficult. I've got somebody in this room right now that will read some of my emails from today and last night. And the same with my office when I'm in Switzerland here or when my office is in England, they'll be reading my email, not me, because I still, it would take too long to me, for me to write a, a letter to somebody is like the biggest problem I've ever been in. So all of those things gave me a benefit, I believe. Your legacy, Sir Jackie, is one to feel so proud of. I mean, it really is drastically improving safety in motor racing. What was it like in those early days, i.e. what didn't you have that modern day Formula One drivers and cars have now? We didn't have helicopters. <laughs> we didn't have private planes. Um, <laughs> we were travelling economy, not first class. What about the cars though themselves in terms of safety and roll bars and oh, track safety and medics? Yeah. and Yeah, I mean... If you were to see one of my world championship cars, whether it be the Matra or whether it be the Tyrrell Fords, you would be amazed at the cockpit of the car. You were sitting on the fuel tank up on each side of your, up to your breast almost, and down below to your knees was all fuel tank and very tight to get the fuel for the distance of a race. So I'm a man of average height. So I was the right size. So was Jim Clark, by the way. Uh, so was Mario Andretti. Most of the boys, the really quick ones, well, had the benefit of being men of average height. And therefore, those elements are not the same today. The cockpit of a Formula One car today is a survival cell. It's an amazing amount of space they have. And all the protection they have today, that's wonderful. I mean, I had a little bit to play with all the improvements in motorsport safety. But the racing cars themselves, that was designers, new generation of designers who changed safety, not just on the track, but in the cockpit or in the car. We don't see fires now in Formula One races. We saw fires all the time. Lots of our, my friends were killed. The racetrack never stopped in a fire. We drive through the flames of... Joe Sleffer or any of our real close friends. And we knew who it was because in some cases their helmets fell off because the helmets weren't so good in those days. And we know that it's a dead man. He's a friend. But they never stopped the race. So I won several races under these circumstances. And all you could do is when you got the podium, instead of spraying champagne, you, you dropped your head in respect. And the wife was still at the track, you know, with Helen or Betty Hill or 
Sally Stokes, Jim's girlfriend at that time, helping Piers Courage's widow, who's still at the track, you know? So that's the difference. It was colourful, it was exciting, but it was hopelessly dangerous. Today, you know, I did an awful lot to change motor racing safety in my time, and I wasn't popular for it. The harrowing Nürburgring circuit, considered by most drivers to be the toughest and most demanding in the world, is described by the best possible guide in the world, Jackie Stewart. So we're going down this wooded section, this funnel almost in the forest, and you're going around in fourth gear, very, very quick indeed. This is an area where you can lose a lot of time. You can, of course, gain a lot because here you've got to be very clean. You come in here to this particular corner, you're braking quite hard. Now, in full tanks, you might go through in second. But again, you've got to be clean because if you get it on the wrong line on this first bend here, you're going to lose this whole series. Every time I see this, it frightens me because there's no barriers on the right-hand side. There's just a rock face and trees. You've got a left-hand side barrier, but that's not where you're going to go off the road. I think if I were to walk around them, I would be horrified. I would never drive around the place again. So the faster you drive around the ring, the less you know. And maybe that's the best thing to do. I closed the Nürburgring in Germany. 187 corners per lap. You couldn't marshal that number on each side of the racetrack with not enough fire extinguishers. Nicky Lauda nearly died because there weren't good fire extinguishers to put the fire out. He shouldn't have had as many injuries as he did. But that was because it's improved. It had improved even for him in those days, but still hadn't improved like it is today. A couple of years ago, a Swedish driver, he may have been Finnish, I think, died twice in the racing car in an accident and was jump-started twice with the medical equipment that we have today with a doctor's car that gets to the accident right away, not just from the start-finishing line, but around the track so that they don't have to drive for a minute and a half to get to the accident. They're there. Jackie, you might not have been always popular for bringing in those safety measures, but, you know, the wonderful thing is that, that you're alive to enjoy your family and your grandchildren. But take me back, if you would, to 1966 and Spa. I think you crashed at 165 miles per hour and you were pinned in the cockpit by the steering column with the fuel tank ruptured. Spa 1966 was a race Jackie was never to finish. And that's all we've seen. Only six cars have gone through at the end of the first lap. Drivers encountered a fierce rainstorm at the 145 mile an hour corner at the bottom of the hill. And that was where Graham Hill saw in the field the other BRM, that of Jackie Stewart, upside down with Jackie still in it. Did you think your number was up that day? And was that a seminal moment in you realising that you needed to make a difference as far as safety goes? Well, when an accident happens, you've got a lot going. Just, I was unconscious a wee while and then wakened up unconscious and so forth. So I really wasn't thinking about the danger on that day. I mean, I was trapped in the car for over 30 minutes and then taken and laid in the backside in the top of a horse cart because there was no marshals there. There was no medical help there. And when the ambulance did come, they took me to the medical centre of the racetrack. And I'll never forget lying on a canvas stretcher, looking round at cigarette 
was lying on the floor. I mean, nothing to do with safety or cleanliness at all. And then when they put me in the ambulance to get me to the hospital, the police escort lost the ambulance, and the ambulance lost the weight at the hospital. That doesn't happen today. There's a helicopter takes them, and they've jump-start somebody that's died now and still stays alive in almost every case. So it's progress. I was part of that. It was very unpopular. They didn't want doctors. The doctor at one of the racetracks we went to, the doctor was a gynecologist. Oh, my goodness. That wouldn't be much yes, use, would it? He was an enthusiast. He was fond of motor racing. So the organiser said, he knows about motor racing. We'll give him the medical. He was the head medical officer. Now, sometimes racing drivers do need gynecologists around, but not always. And no. You know, that sort of thing doesn't happen. Now, we've got, in every Grand Prix we go, they've got the right kit for it. Unless it's a terribly bad accident, they don't die. It's quite a while since we lost a driver doing speeds that were even faster than my type. But the runoff areas have got deformable structures now. And, you know, they don't get killed when you hit them. And in fact, there's more accidents today than there were in my time because people are taking more chances because they know they're better protected. So after such incredible success, including three world championships, what was the tipping point? What made you think it's time now to stop and walk away when, when you're a relatively young man? I was burned out. I retired when I was 34 years of age. And Lewis Hamilton today, I think, is 38 or something like that, 38 or 39. I'd made a decision in April that I would race the season out because I felt I needed to do that for Ken Till, the entrant, and for Ford Motor Company, who were deeply involved with it. So I only took, I only told three people that I was going to retire, and Helen wasn't one of them. Nobody knew, and I swore them to secrecy because I didn't want anybody to be counting bottles, particularly Helen, you know, 10 green bottles sitting on the wall. I didn't want that for her. But I was burned out. I had had a duty also that hemorrhaged at one time because I did 68 crossings of the Atlantic, driving in races in America and, and Europe and Australia and New Zealand and all over the world to make good money because the numbers were small in those days. But I collected quite a large amount of money in those days that have served me very well right up to today. So the, the sport... I had the junior loss, and then I had mononucleosis, which is a blood disorder, and I lost world championships because of it, because I had to stay off, with, particularly because of the junior ulcer hemorrhaging. I think I lost three Grand Prix that year, and therefore lost the world championship. It was time to retire. I knew that. I never, ever wanted to go back. I never one day thought, oh, good, I'd love a wee drive again. I've never liked it. I love the sport. I love being there. But because I was part of the development of the commercial side, particularly of Formula One, which has become a giant, I was making a lot of money. But it was small money. I think the biggest amount of money I made in one year at that time, in 1971, I think I just made over a million pounds. Now, that was a lot of money in 1968 or 1970. Uh, it was 71, I think. It certainly was. It's a lot of but, money now. Yeah, but, you know, today Lewis Hamilton, I think, earns uh, 54 million pounds a year for driving only 23 races. I was driving 75 races. 
to get that. Sports cars, GT cars, Can-Am cars, Indy cars, God knows what else. But that was what we all did. That's what Jim Clark did. That's what Graham Hill did. That's what Mario Andretti did. That's what Jochen Rindt did. We all did it. That was the only way to earn money. And it was glamorous, colourful and exciting, travelling to every corner of the world. I loved New Zealand. I loved Australia. I loved America because I'd be driving a touring car, a GT car or something else. So the sport then was definitely more colourful in some respects, but today it's more glamorous because of its scale, its size. Television has been a huge part of that. So I'm still doing it. You know, I'm still there. I'm still going to Canada, and I'll be there for uh, Heineken, actually, but I'll service Rolex a little bit while I'm there. But I'm bringing, hopefully, a new sponsor into Formula One. Now, that's part of my business now and part of my life. And they're a multinational corporation in America. They've never been to a Grand Prix before, so I'm taking them to Miami. And if we do the deal, it's wonderful. If they don't do the deal, I'll find another one. So I'm still loving the sport. Never wanted to go back. I drove the odd car for a company called Elf Aquitaine. Elf was a great fuel company in France. And they wanted me to drive five years after my retirement. They wanted me to drive the current cars of that period. And I did it. And I enjoyed it. But I didn't want to do it again. I certainly didn't want to race again. It was in a circuit that I had to myself, whether it was the Paul Ricard circuit in France or another circuit somewhere else. I was driving the then up to top level cars. Somebody offered me five million pounds after I retired. Not immediately. I think it was about five or six years after I retired. And I just had no desire to do it. Nothing to do with money. I just had no desire to do it. I am keeping my eye on the stopwatch now because I know you have to get ready to go to Miami soon and that you're very busy every day. So I just have two more questions. I've got hundreds of more questions, but we'll stick to two if that's all right and then let you get on. Thoughts on Lewis Hamilton and what he's achieved? He's done extremely well. He came from modest beginnings. His father had four or five jobs to afford his karting before a man called Ron Dennis picked him up because he was so good at karting and took him into McLaren and got him to win Grand Prix. He's very talented right from the beginning because everybody has to go into karting before they get to motorsport at a higher level, men or women. So we're going to see women in the future. But Ron Dennis did an amazing amount for that young man. And when it came time to leave, it was his decision, not Ron Dennis. It was Lewis Hamilton's decision to go to Mercedes-Benz because he thought the potential of what they had to offer. He went and stayed at Mercedes-Benz since then and, and has won, is it eight world championships, I think? Seven or eight, it's, I think, isn't it? It's seven up there. or eight, I remember. But anyway, he's now struggling a little bit because he's had a new teammate who's been quicker than him in qualifying so far this year, which is going to be difficult for him to handle. But I think it's time for him to resign. Do you? And he's got music, he's got culture, he loves clothing, and, and the, the, the rag trade would be absolutely suitable for him. I'm sure he'll be very successful because he's been earning a huge amount of money, rightfully so, because he's been the best of his time. And that's the best you can do. Juan Manuel Fangio, way back in the 50s, well, not the 40s actually, 
And Nuvolari and Caracciola, way back in the 20s and 30s, there's always somebody up there, whether it was Jim Clark or whether it was all the drivers of the time. Juan Manuel Fangio is the ultimate god for me, Argentinian, and was the smoothest, bestest driver I've ever seen. I carried him to his last resting place. So Lewis is in that group of the Ayrton Senna's and the Alan Prost, or even the Jackie Stewart's maybe. But he's carried the sport very well. But it's time maybe to leave at the top and, I would and like, retire. I would like to see him resigning now. It's a pity he wasn't resigning at the top, but I don't think that's going to happen now. But nevertheless, it's wiser to stop than go through all the pain of not being able to do what you did before. And my final thoughts, Sir Jackie, you are a member of a very small club in terms of standing on that world championship Formula One podium with champagne spraying everywhere. What was that feeling like in those celebratory moments when you won the world championship standing up there on the podium? Well, I was the first to start champagne in Formula One. Were you? I didn't know that. It was a hot day and somebody had left the bottle out in the heat. Fred Chandon, actually, Count Frederick Chandon, the, the president of France was presenting me with a trophy. It was the French Grand Prix. And he said, oh, you must have the champagne to put in the trophy so we can celebrate your success. When I undid it, the thing exploded because it had been left out in the heat. And I put my finger on it as a Scot to save it. <laughs> it just went further. So that was the beginning of that. Emotion, as I said much earlier on, is dangerous, both going up and going down. It would take me three days after a Grand Prix that I had won to realise that I won that Grand Prix. It meant something. It was neutral until then. And I think mind management was my asset. And frankly, it still lives. I'm amazed that some of the you know, even the really clever people in the world need to have good mind management. Mind management is important. So I still get involved with Formula One commercially. I have a strong belief you can't be a little bit pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. So if you're going to do it, do it well. And that's why I'm still surrounded with Formula One to a very large extent and other activities commercially. The sport allowed me to do that because it was a motor car, and everybody is in love with motor cars. So that was part of the privilege that I had, and I did it at a nice time, the swinging 60s and 70s. You know, I tell everybody that the swinging 60s and the 70s, when I was there, motor racing was dangerous, and sex was safe. (laughs) You've been listening to Formula One legend Sir Jackie Stewart chatting to us about his life and career from his home in Switzerland. I don't know about you, but I'm sad to come to the end of our conversation. It's been just a joy. Don't forget, download and subscribe to our podcast series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week with another fascinating guest. So join me then. 